millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. What's up, everyone? Welcome back for a new edition of Collider Ladies Night. I'm very excited to welcome Grace Gummer to the show because Let the Right One In the show is quite good. And I'll admit to you, I was skeptical because I love, love, love that original movie so much. And there's a lot of pressure there. I'm with you. I'm very impressed, though. Very impressed. Thank you. Thanks. I'm glad you like it. All right. So before we even get to that, we kick things off with a little game. It's called Dicey Questions, and we play with the dice tower behind me. I have eight random questions here. You get three rolls on the tower, and whatever I roll for you, that is where we start at least. Okay. All right. First one up. You got a number five to start here. Number five is must-haves. What is something that you can't be on set without? Whether it's, you know, your notes, a certain snack, something to do to pass the time in between scenes, you name it. On set, I can't live without one thing. Does that have to be one thing? I'll let you pick more than one thing if it's important to you. Definitely my notes. My original script that I've written everything down in. So not the sides, not the thing that they give you on the day, but the what I've printed out myself and the notes that I have on my script. And a bagel. You're a New Yorker, aren't you? Yeah. All right. So bagel is an appropriate answer. If anyone who is LA based to me said that, I would judge them harshly. (laughs) All right. You got your second role here. Okay. We are on a number four. Number four is rewatch. What is the movie that you have rewatched the most? Oh my God. The most? Oh God. Maybe Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. What a good choice. A classic. It's so good. All right. You have one more roll in the tower here, and hopefully this works. We are ending this with a number seven. All right. I'm glad we got the one um, let the right one in question on this list today. So you yourself, real you, are turned into a vampire. 
You need to tell one person in your life who will be there to go the distance for you. Who do you pick and why? My husband. I mean, we, we, we said our vows. He better go the distance with me. <laughs> That's a fair answer right there. Yeah. He's the one. He's the one for life. He's a lifer. All right. Let's get into the meat of it now. Every single ladies night interview begins here. What is the, the movie, the personal experience, the performance you saw, you name it, that first made you say to yourself, I have to be an actor and absolutely nothing else. Um, <clears throat> there are so many, but I remember sitting in a, in a theater at the Dunmar warehouse in London and I saw Ruth Wilson in Anna Christie. And I just was like, uh-oh, I guess I got to do this. <laughs> she, I mean, she blew me away. Uh, that, and she's my contemporary, you know, she's my age. So I, I, I really relate to her and I think she's just such a beautiful actor. And um, yeah, on, on camera, I think for film, anything that Kate Blanchett has ever done, um, made me, made me question all my life decisions. Uh, I actually just recently saw Tar and I loved it. She is incredible in Tar. Like I was like breathless the entire time. Me too. I was holding my breath because there's just no separation between the, the actor and the character. It's just, there's, it's an effortless, like, it's like, there she is. She's just, she's this person. And it's, it, you can't distinguish either like when it happens or how it happens. It's an energetic feeling you get on a cellular level. That to me is, is so, is what makes me want to do what I do. I know it's difficult to judge your own work that way, but to kind of build on like mentally making the decision that I want to act. Have you had that experience or maybe what was the earliest experience you had on set that made you, you know, feel that way and feel like not only do I want to do this, but I'm, I'm meant to do it too. Yeah. So I was in college and I was, um, I was doing a lot of like black box student theater and we put on the seagull and it, it sounds so trite and you know duh of course if you play nina in the seagull you're gonna have a transformative experience but i did because i was 19 and i um i remember thinking that that same feeling when i watched ruth wilson on stage i was just like oh god i there's something in me that is beyond me that is something i can't even really explain to myself that feels um, so exhilarating and exciting and necessary and important and, and deeply me. I don't even know why or how, um, but it made me happy. And it, I think once you find that thing that makes you happy, it's, it's really, it's like addictive. It's really hard to not, to not just keep doing it and to, and to, want to do it better and to want to learn how to do it better. And um, yeah, I think that was the moment just being super young and being in a tiny little shitty black box theater in college and tired and, and um, overworked and, and 
yeah, being saying, speaking Chekhov, like there's just nothing better. So to, to back it up there a little, when you went to college, you decided, I think it, what was it? Arts history and Italian, right? Yeah. So I, I double majored in art history and Italian and I, um, I was going to be a religion major or an English major. Uh, but then I, I, or a drama major, but I, I didn't love the drama department, to be honest. I didn't love all the drama classes and I really wanted to try and do some other stuff. So, um, I, I loved sitting in these old buildings at school and looking at slides of, of art through the ages that just like, that also was something that made me super happy. And, you know, my dad is an artist, so I've always grown up with a lot of art and with a lot of, um, analyzing art and looking at art. So, um, it felt familiar and, and, and calming and wonderful. So I did that. And then I fell in love with an Italian guy at school who, who would speak to me in Italian. So naturally I was like, I guess I got to take it. I have a language requirement. I got to take Italian. So, um, I did that and I was actually pretty good at it. So I, my professor who I loved told me to go spend the semester in Bologna. So I lived in Siena and then Bologna. And then I, upon graduating, I, uh, I worked for Zach Posen for a minute. And then I worked for Anne Roth, um, who's a legendary costume designer. And she, knowing that I spoke Italian, um, she sent me to a, to a Sartoria in Rome. And that's where I lived and worked for about a year. Um, when I was living there, I got a call from a friend of my brother's who's this wonderful stage director who sent me a, a play by this Swiss German playwright. It was called The Sexual Neuroses of Our Parents. It's a very weird, tiny play, but really weird. And I, um, he was like, "Will you do you want to be involved? Do you want to design the costumes for it? We're doing an off off Broadway production of it." And I read it, and the first thing I thought was, "You know, I didn't have any design ideas. I just want to say these words." And I just I felt so connected, oddly, to this weird young girl. So I flew home. I auditioned. I got it, and um, it sort of planted the seed. You've got that seed. You've got a whole bunch of other things in your back pocket. When you want to jump into, I guess, the Hollywood system at the time, what did you think the first, uh, the best first step to take was? And ultimately, looking back, was that the best first step? Or would you recommend aspiring actors try something different to get going? That's a good question. I don't, I think it's so different for everybody. I think I am in a, new, in a pretty unique different situation because of, you know, who my mom is. So I, you know, it was always something I, I, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it, but once I started doing it, I couldn't deny it. And I loved it so much. So, um, there was sort of nothing that was going to stop me. Um, but I wanted to, it was really important for me to, to forge my own path for myself and to, to make it mine and to, to not be in reference to her constantly or in in the in her shadow i really it was really it was essential for me to um make my own name um but ironically the first job i got was about um 
it sort of thrust me into Hollywood was um, this show, this this little teen Nick show called Gigantic, where I played the daughter of a very famous person. Um, but it was so not my life. Like it was so different from how I grew up. So I was able to um, remove myself from it and and try to really play a character. And it was a really good first job for me. I, I moved to LA. I, uh, I got a car. I drove to work. I was on set every day on time. It was like boot camp. I was, I was number one on the call sheet. So I had, I had to really learn a lot really fast, really young. Um, it's, it's not the job that I think that I would have seen myself doing necessarily, but it led me towards, um, I just learned, I learned a lot technically about, about how to be a working actor. And I think that, you know, the opportunity came up for me to go to drama school and I applied and I started to get ready for the audition. And then every time I would think about doing it, I would get a job. So I would recommend, I think drama school is wonderful and, and um, can be, you know, can be, can work for a lot of people and, and a lot of people love it, but, um, I get my, you know, I, I, I get my school from, from working and I'm, I feel very lucky obviously to be able to have been working consistently for the past, I don't know, 11 years, but yeah, I, I think you, I think you learn even more when you work. So I'm glad that I did that. So why I bring up the question, every path is different. So I always love hearing the variety out there. Um, I apologize in advance because I'm sure you get asked about your mom a lot, but your, uh, your explanation there just made me think of this. So you have, you have this industry legend in your corner and I imagine you want to learn as much from her as humanly possible, but you also brought up wanting to carve your own path. So what is something that you learned from her that really did serve you well and you continue to embrace today? But then also, what's something that you saw her do that maybe you tried but showed to you like, no, I have to do this my own way or it's not going to work for me? Mm. My mom is my mom to me. She's not who she is to, she's not, you know, who she is to you. She isn't to me. So I, I, I seek advice where I feel like, um, I can use it, which is, which is, she does have really great ideas and really great notes for me sometimes. And, and I, I definitely listen to her, but I think what I've learned the most from from both of my parents is just loving what you do is the most important is the is the sole you know driver and the engine behind behind your life and also it's not your entire life there's so many other things that define you as a person and as a woman um and and yeah yeah i've learned a lot I feel like that idea is so applicable to just about everyone out there in any field, especially when they're like so deeply passionate about it that it could potentially consume a life. Yeah, totally. 
All right, let's get into some specific titles here. There's so many I want to hit. The first one I'll bring up, though, uh, is Newsroom. I had a I had a guest on Ladies Night recently who was who was talking about the challenge of needing to be word perfect on that set. So, did you feel that pressure yourself? And if so, how did you adapt to that way of working? So, Aaron Sorkin is there at every rehearsal every read so you run the lines first with Aaron standing there with you like in a huddle it's almost like a football huddle before you play a sport and he's there with you and it's like game time go and everyone works in this sort of with the kind of cadence and the symphony in which he writes to get every sort of beat and and word right and perfect for how he intended it to be um and it works. I mean, it's like, there's a reason why his stuff is, is so unique to him and such his, you know, his, his specific voice is so, uh, resonates and, and is so recognizable and, um, likable to so many people. Um, he certainly has his own, you know, specific style. Uh, but it was hard. I mean, when you, when you would sort of, not say it fast enough. It was almost like, just say it as fast as you can and you'll get it, you know? Don't ever slow it down. Um, but in, in some ways, like having those rules around the lines was was sort of comforting. Like there was, you didn't sort of drift off and not know what you were doing. You, you really, really had to know what you were doing. Do you find anything from that experience having stuck with you and uh, being able to apply it even on other projects now? Definitely, because that was sort of my first big job. Um, I I use that as sort of a blueprint and a template for. Not that I say all my lines like an Aaron Sorkin show. <laughs> um, I would really enjoy that though, if it was some sort of like web series sketch where an artist totally. just revisited everything in that style. Totally. No, but I'm, I'm like a drill sergeant when it comes to my lines. I feel like if you don't know your lines, you can't listen. You can't be in the moment. You can't, the lines, you, you can't think about them. They just have to, they have to be, they have to live inside you. And as I get older, it's harder for sure for them to sink in. So uh, I have to do it days in advance. I used to be able to just like the night before the day of just kind of get it, but um, no, I got to Now I, I have to spend like, if it's a lot of words in a, in a big scene, definitely four or five days, at least before this, before the scene, just to like understand them and read them and live with them and say them a bunch of times. But, um, yeah, sometimes I, I have gotten myself into a situation where I'm in an audition and I'm just saying all these lines super fast. Cause that's like, <laughs> that's what I, it's like what I, you know, what I learned with really. I get it. Um, in a complete uh, switch here, I do want to bring up American Horror Story because I'm just full blown obsessed with that series. And still to this day, it feels like there's, there's nothing out there that's quite like it. So I think the first thing I was curious about was I know you had the one episode on Coven. Was it a situation where that went so well that you were immediately, you know, brought into consideration for a larger role in Freak Show? I guess so. I don't know how that stuff works. I mean, that's a good question. And thank you for remembering that one episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
think that that was like peak AHS obsession days for me. Yeah. But that was, I think like, I think I had a, a just a really good audition and, and, um, and a great time on that one episode. And I, and I guess he remembered, you know, they just remembered me and I came back and, and I came back as a lizard. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that so that's something else. Like again, American Horror Story is unlike anything else out there. So was there any particular, you know, day on set or a scene of Freak Show where like you kind of stopped dead in your tracks and said to yourself, like, I can't believe we're doing this. How is this even going to work? There were many days where I was like, I am a person to be loved, right? Like <laughs> I'm having to remind myself that I was like, okay. Cause it's so, it's so gnarly what you have to go through and what they put you through and what, oh boy, what you have to, the places you have to go in your mind. I mean, it's, it's deeply upsetting and dark and just physically also takes it out of you. I mean, I had, I had tattoo transfers all over my face and, and a prosthetic on my head. And, you know, I requested to to actually not work more than two days in a row because taking off the the um, the tattoos with alcohol was so abrasive to my skin. It, it like I would get these like rashes. So and yeah, I mean it was it was the one time you know people always are like, do you ever get scared shooting horror movies or any horror scenes? And usually, always my answer is no because it's also fake and technical and you see everything going on but this there was there was definitely a moment on set once where I was like I'm I'm actually terrified <laughs> can you share what that moment was it was it was weird because it was not even like it we were in a real house or a real you know energetically haunted place or something but it was it was on a set when it was recreated to be this sort of disgusting awful um caravan and there were there was blood everywhere and feathers everywhere and i forget ah. the woman's name the actress who was she has no legs so it's only her torso and her body she was on the floor and she was in pain and then the guy who plays my father comes in just the the, the actor playing my father was so good and so convincing and the lighting was so uh eerie and and spooky and um the the like also the the level of professionalism on those sets is is uncanny i mean it's like it's unlike any other set it's very very quiet it's very organized it's very dialed everybody's very focused so you really really feel the the silence when it's silent and and there's something about his face when he looked at me he came in and i could see myself as this woman that he had tattooed and, and, you know, tore out my, or, or cut my tongue in half and shaved my head. And I, I brought myself there and I was like, I'm really scared. <laughs> I get that's a, that is a particularly heavy scene in an all around heavy show. So I definitely get that. Yeah. Yeah. The elements were just everything combined and it was just terrifying. <laughs> 
I don't know what is something about it was really scary. I get it. Um, I want to go back to something you you just said about the idea of only working uh, two days in a row. Just more more generally, when you feel strongly about something like that, I know especially when you're newer into the industry, it can be uh, a little scary to kind of you know speak up and say something and, and get what you need. So when you need something like that, how how would you recommend someone best go about expressing their needs and actually have a chance? of getting them i would say right away don't don't sit on it don't like dwell on it don't be afraid of it if it's something that will benefit you and the work that you're doing that's the most important thing and obviously your safety and your comfort level is is um paramount to to all of it but um for me i just knew that in that moment i wasn't gonna be able to really do good work if i if i was angry at these people for making me wear this stuff all over my face, you know? So to make everybody's lives easier, it's always good to, to speak up and say what you want. I got to hit one more title before we start to creep towards let the right one in. I have to ask about Mr. Robot because that's probably, I don't know, it's probably one of the most unforgettable ending sequence for a character on TV I, I think I've ever seen. I can't believe how much it has stuck with me. Um, so you have, you have that sequence where it's kind of like a, a really intense, uh, like big decision-making roller coaster, and just conveying inner turmoil and change of heart, I always think is one of the most challenging things for an actor to convey, at least from my perspective. So man, there's so many parts of it that I want to hit right now. I'll touch on this one first. In the scene on the plane, if that flight attendant hadn't been there when Dom got up to leave, do you think that she ultimately would have gotten off the plane or was she always destined to stop and stay there? Wow. That's a good question. Thought about this a lot. <laughs> well, I want to know what you think, but I, I think she was destined to stay there. I think she was destined or destined to get on the plane and go to Budapest and and I think, Dom, I feel so bad for her. She has so much, she like, she cares so much and she's, she's sort of, she's funny and so tragic in this way. Um, and sort of so clueless about relationships and <laughs> that that's not her strong suit. So I, I, yeah, I felt so bad for her, but I, I think that she really deeply felt like she was doing the right thing and she wanted to change her life and, and you know, switch it up and, and be with the person she loves. Okay, so I guess I'll go back to, you know, the emotional roller coaster of it all from there because you have to keep changing your mind in that sequence, but in particular, once she's on the plane, she goes from trying to get off so she could go be with Darlene, but then in an instant, you need to convey that like, no, she's okay. And she's going to sit here and stay here and, and rest, I guess. So yeah. I, I don't know, how was it tackling such a significant change in such a small amount of screen time? I mean, that's the whole show. Like every single scene, I feel like I had to do that inner turmoil and change of heart and quick thinking and, you know, problem solving and all of that in like the blink of an eye. And in these, in these like very quiet internal 
spaces because the show was it's a big show but i feel like everything was very emotional and very closed um which was so it's so fun as an actor to do that but yeah that was that's true that whole airport sequence is so it's so sad and frustrating sad and frustrating but sometimes i find hope in the idea that i i th i think she things happen the way they're supposed to happen i th i think that ultimately she ended up where she needed to end up and the only way that she would ever be able to realize that is if like life forces had like forced her down that path so maybe she wouldn't have made that decision if the flight attendant wasn't there but that's where she was meant to be in the moment i completely agree all right, I lie. I'm going to squeeze in one more question before we get to let the right one in, just because you have so many other titles that we haven't hit. So in an effort to touch on at least two of them right now, or two co-stars at least, of all the actors you've worked with over the years, whose process is most similar to yours? Where the second you hit set, you were immediately in sync and it was like you were meant to be together. But then on the other hand, what's an example of an actor who had a completely different approach to the work and challenged you to adapt and maybe adapt for the better? Huh. Wow. God, these are questions that I like have to sit and think about. These are like very good questions. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you think they're good. And if you need to sit and think, we also have an editor who can cut down as much dead air as we would like. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, oh God. There's so, there's so many wonderful actors I've worked with. Um, well, Carly, Carly and I became Carly Chaikin and I became really close on Mr. Robot and we ended up actually seeing the same acting coach sometimes. So we would have the same little techniques with each other. Like we would do these secret things with each other that would get, that would help us both get into character. And we, so we felt like we literally had each other's backs. Um, she, she actually taught me a lot about, um about like discipline and 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 studying your line like studying the script and she was very organized in that way i'm not a very organized person um hillary swank was someone i remember i was like wow how do you just show up and do it how do you just like <laughs> magically appear off a peloton and like five peanut butter cookies and you're just like you look fucking amazing and you're doing the best work of your life like and we're out in the you know high desert in new mexico and she was pretty inspiring and strong as hell um oh god that's such a good question i worked with so many wonderful people patty clarkson um but all the directors I think that I loved, you know, Sam, um, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Seath Mann, who I just worked with on Let the Right One In. He really, and Sam too, I feel like they work in a similar way where they're really decisive and they really know what they want. And, um, and they let you play within, within, you know, within the project and, and what you want to say and what you want to do. There's like, there was a lot of similarities between them, but I have to think about the other actors. Oh my God. And so many people on stage, 
So many stage act. I mean, Estelle Parsons, uh, like a legend. Um, these are really great questions, Perry. I'm gonna have to like write them down and and the the door is also always open for another ladies' night good. in the future. So well, I promise you, I won't forget, and we can continue this. I feel like that question also could have made up an entire episode's worth of conversation. <laughs> 100%. But we do have to talk about let the right one in specifically. Yeah. And I'm going to go back to something that I brought up at the very beginning of the conversation. So I'm curious for you, from your perspective, when you're signing on for a show like this, are you considering the extra layer of pressure that comes with a project that's a remake of an iconic film? Or are you in a situation where you have to kind of block all that out and just focus on the script that you are given? I definitely have to do the latter. I have to block it out and focus on the script that I am given because it is so different. I mean, it aesthetically, tonally, you know, the context of the world we were living in and what Andrew was wanting to recreate, that was important to me to honor the movie, to, to see the movie. I didn't sit down with the movie and study it a million times or read the book or see the American version. I think that at some point you have to do your job in front of you and create something different, which is ultimately what we were doing. Um, but I find it more difficult when I'm playing real people. Like when I played Nora Ephron in um, Good Girls Revolt, I, I, especially someone that's so beloved and so, you know, means so much to so many people and has for so many years, that feels like a lot of pressure, but you know, you don't, you don't try and, recreate that person's personality or mimic them or, you know, imitate their anything. It's, it's just sort of, uh, an essence you, you, their essence that you sort of try to embody. And, um, cause you're never going to be the same. You're never going to be the same. No one's the same person, but like, and this is also not the move. Like we're not making a remake of the Swedish movie we're sort of paying homage to it and writing a love letter to it, but going in a whole different direction. That you definitely do. All right, to get into your character now, you're, you're about to get my new favorite question because someone recently mentioned this Joe Wright quote to me and it's, he was specifically talking about directors, but you know, the point kind of was one needs to know a secret about the script that they're about to take on. So when you first accepted the role of Claire, what was your secret about her that kind of gave you the confidence that you had something uniquely you to add to what was on the page that no other actor would be able to bring to screen the same way? I mean, I'll never tell. Yeah, I don't know if it's a good idea to, to tell your secrets about your work, but um, no, I just felt like I could, I could really relate to her. Um, I could relate to her tenacity and her dark sort of humor and her strength and her her dedication and her love to her brother and her family and her, um, her like trying to figure out her, you know, place in the world and her relationship to, to her family. Like, I, I don't know. And also there were so many unknowns about her that seemed so exciting and like exciting shoes to, to fill that I, I also want to leave a lot up to, 
actually not knowing, you know, exactly what I'm doing. I think that that's really important because if you think you know what you're doing as soon as you go in there and as soon as you walk in the room to be on set, it's, it's not a good idea. I feel like that's giving me a tease of what all of your answers might be to my episode five questions, but we'll get there. We'll get there in a minute. I am just curious though, had you ever considered how Claire might've handled this whole situation? Had her father told her that her brother survived or, or maybe had her father told her her brother was bit actually. Like if, if, he had told her before you mean yeah like er, like early on if she was in the know from the very beginning and could have like crafted her life path in a way that would help yeah how do you think she would view everything her father had done then i mean i think that she still would have hated him because of what he had to do to keep him alive i, I think that she still just as a person in her life doesn't like him. Um, and it's just morally uh, not aligned with anything, you know, with him at all. I think she has a, a moral compass that is much, much sort of obviously better and, and stronger than his. But I think that yeah, she probably would have made, she probably would have made different decisions. Uh, but I don't think it would have changed the way she felt about her dad. I don't know. It's so, what, what was so interesting about shooting this was like the chances it gave me to figure out how she was actually conflicted about, not conflicted, but um, you know, no matter how much you how much anyone like hates their parents or whatever knowing that they're dying or seeing them die is is complicated it's it's hard so it wasn't what was so cool about this show is that it wasn't there was so there's so many moments that were living in this gray area it wasn't so black and white you know it wasn't like i hate you i i'm against everything you're doing it was kind of like that but it's it was also you know, at the heart and soul of this show is love. So it was fun to like play around with that. Reflects uh, reality more that way. And it also keeps the viewer on their toes when they're watching the, the decisions all the characters make. Absolutely. I can't wait to get into the gray area, but you need to see the movie Bones and All. There's like certain themes and ideas that parallel really? what you're doing in this, just like the the idea of someone being labeled like very in a very clear cut manner, monstrous or bad, but because they're doing something that they need to do. It's just like, I, I happen to have seen both back to back and it's just making my brain spin out of control. Yeah. It's sort of like a Walter White, like a good person doing a bad, you know, like, and is that okay? And is that, is that evil or is that good or questioning the duality of being a human being is, is I think what we're all doing all the time. Nonstop. All right. I'm going to do it now. This is our episode five conversation. And I've kind of like basically just focused on one particular sequence of this here. So 
when when Matthew is talking to Claire at the I think it's at the dining room table and making a case for selling Claire's painkiller, there's a million ways that she could respond to a pitch like that. But the line that you give back to him is, why do you think my drug's going to bring in so much more money? Why did that particular response feel right for her in that moment for you? Because I think she's still wrestling with who she is supposed to be versus who she is versus what she's, you know, there's so many variables going on that it's like, how do you think that I could be this evil monster? How do you look at me and think that, you know, there's a difference between what you think of yourself versus what everybody thinks of you or what someone else thinks of you and what you're capable of too. It's terrifying that he's suggesting that she's capable of doing something like this. And I think once she realizes that she is, um, that's, that's also utterly terrifying. Okay. So then, then the next moment, because at the end of that scene, she kind of like closes the door to, you know, in a sense for the moment, at least where she says she can't because she'll be no better than her dad. But then in the next scene, specifically when he explains what it felt like, that's what makes her reconsider. So what specifically about him using that kind of as ammunition to further this plan along changed things in her mind? Is it the encouragement that it could actually bring in the money and help her brother? Or is there actual like personal excitement that what she created works that well? I mean, I think she obviously is someone that gets off on doing really good work. And that is what is, you know, is, is, has been her entire life. I think that combined with saving her brother, like the cocktail of those two things, uh, she'll do anything to do that. So that's like a no brainer. I mean, when you love someone, that's what was so interesting to me about this show and the way that Andrew presented it to me was, you know, it, it really is sort of a part of what was so important to him to convey was that it was a larger metaphor for battling addiction and what you, what lengths you'll go to, to protect and save and keep happy and keep alive the people that you love that are struggling. And, and I think that that decision that she makes is like, obviously there's, no, there's not one truer love that she's had in her life than her little brother. Um, and that as like the, the, the driving force behind everything she's doing and I think behind everybody in the show is doing is in these little families that we have is is so beautiful and also what the movie really is about. All right, I'll end my episode five interrogation with this one. So uh, at the end of that conversation outside, she, she repeats, I can't become my father and then says that if I do this, I won't sit idly by. In that particular moment at that time, what does she think she'll do differently than her father so that the operation is better and maybe so that she could sleep easier at night? I think it's so beyond her that she doesn't even know. I think it's like she knows that she has a huge job to do. She doesn't know exactly how it's going to happen, but she's spent her whole life right, like trying to right the wrongs of her dad and to not be her dad. And then suddenly she is becoming her dad. I think that I don't, I don't think that she has a like master plan either way. 
I think that she's like, fuck, on her toes, just like on the edge of her life, you know, like constantly every second is, is making these life or death decisions in the matter of minutes. And it's all coming at her so fast. And I think that she has no choice. This is why I like can't take my eyes off of you. And the, every single character in the show is compelling, but the way that you are straddling the line with being, you know, uh, you know, responsible and wanting to do the right thing, but me very clearly feeling the connection to the brother and the draw to save him. It's just, man, it makes it stressful to watch in the best possible way. It's very stressful. It's very stressful to do. <laughs> Honestly, can't even imagine. I must let you go, but huge congratulations on Let the Right Thank One you. In. I cannot wait to see more and hurry up and make more things because you need to come back on Collider Ladies Night so we can continue our uh, collaborator question. I have to make like a, a Collider Ladies Night journal now and really like write down all of my thoughts and feelings. <laughs>